Welcome to the Success Leaves Clues podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Have you ever wondered what makes someone successful? What are they doing that's different? How do they achieve greatness? We believe that success leaves clues. In this series, we are interviewing very successful people from different walks of life to hear their stories. We'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and not necessarily those shared by our hosts. Welcome back to the Success Leaves Clues podcast. I'm your host, Robin Bailey, here again with my co-host and business partner, Al McDonald. Al, happy Friday. Happy podcast Friday. Thank you. What's new and exciting in your world these days, Al? I always talk about cycling and I will throw a, a big thanks out to everyone who helped me out with my great cycle challenge in August. I was able to complete that and exceed both my goal for kilometers ridden and money raised. So thank you to everyone. And then secondly, I'm really looking forward to our guest today and speaking with her again, because we had such great conversation the first time around. So I'm very excited about the second time around. Yeah. And I would say it's probably the first time and the best time that after we did uh, one of our chemistry calls that we do and, and meet someone for the first time, we got such a fabulous shout out on LinkedIn, wonderful video. And I was saying to Al, I said, Karen must You'd do a lot of these videos because it was really good. And we ended up playing at our team meeting. So thank you very much. And I already alluded to who's joining us today, but officially joining us today is Karen Craggs Milne. And welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Well, you know, usually this is the point in the podcast where I go through and I read someone's bio. I'm reading through yours preparing for this episode and I'm thinking, wow, this is a lot of information. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to do you credit. So I thought rather than me reading through this, I thought at this point in the podcast, just getting started, you could tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you've come from and where you are today and what you're doing. And then we can jump into having a great conversation. Well, thank you. That's fantastic. So I would start by saying I'm Karen the nice Karen, because there's way too many people who think that Karens are not nice. So <laughs> so I think that's important to me. And also, I have been doing social justice work for over 23 years globally. I was born and raised in Kenya, East Africa, and I moved to Canada about 25 years ago. And this work is really the reason why I get up every day and it is my legacy. And so I take it very personally. It's more than just earning a living. It's really making a difference in the world. And I just love every opportunity that I get to talk about the work, to educate people and inspire people. And I can't wait to reach more people through this conversation with you. Your energy from the time that I met with you to the videos that I see that you do, you put on LinkedIn because you're active on LinkedIn to your first couple of words on this episode, you have so much passion. And to me, maybe it's different for you, but to me, you exude joy. Where does that come from? And how do you do that? Because I've talked to Al and we talked on a previous podcast. I love what I do. You know, if they won the lottery tomorrow, would I really be doing it anymore? I might move away somewhere and do something else. But I'm always curious about people like yourself. Where does that come from? Like, how do you do it? And I know it's not an act because with you, it's consistent. So where does that come from? <laughs> That's great. I just think that I really love life. And 
Actually, the deeper answer would be I grew up in a complex household. And one of the things that shaped me in terms of my parents' experience was my dad was an adventurer. He was always deep sea diving and fishing and traveling across Africa. He's from England, a small town in England, and was part of the colonial government that went to Africa to build the railways. So he had this like incredible life that I heard about since I was a child. And then I had my mom who was very domestic and was dealing with bipolar issues and every day was a struggle. And there was a sense of like, life is happening to me and injustice is happening to me. And so the contrast of the two, I think made me realize that what I want is I want to experience all the joy and all the beauty of life. And I wanna bring that to people so that if they experience what my mom does, that I can help them see the world through a different lens. And so it just became kind of my way of being, a chosen way of being, because it would have been so easy for me to just adopt my mom's worldview. And I decided that that wasn't what I wanted. Well, so it's a wonderful perspective because you're right. I mean, you could have gone a different direction and chosen, as you said, it's, it's very purposeful that you choose to look at life a certain way. For me, Success Leaves Clues, right? Name of the podcast. That's one that I'm going to very much take away because the effect that you have on me every time we talk (laughs) is just so, it gives me shivers. Like I'm going to come away from this conversation so energized and feeling good. This was when you posted that uh, video on LinkedIn. I just felt really good. I think that's one of your natural gifts that you have to give the world to make people feel good. So hopefully by the end of this conversation, you're (laughs) going to have a whole heck of a lot of people listening to this episode feeling really great. I would use the (laughs) word inspiring. That's what I would use based on the conversations that we've had because yes, your energy and your passion definitely show through. Can I just say... It is so wonderful to have two adult white men telling me how amazing I am. <laughs> Such a treat. So I will thank you very much for the generosity and thank you for seeing me, like really seeing me. You are more than welcome. <laughs> well, let's jump in because we're here to talk about some business and some things that you're doing that are very exciting. And when we first chatted, you told us about the Conscious Equality Framework. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means And even maybe expand on that. And why did you create this in the beginning? Uh, That's a great place to start around work. So we know that I'm really passionate about social justice. And it came from, you know, my personal experiences growing up in a house with a white colonial father and a brown Indian mother and growing up in Africa with a black brother who was always treated as a second class citizen. And so I've grown up very sensitive to how in the same space, I am treated with more privilege than him. But if the context changes, then I'm treated with less privilege because I'm a woman instead of a man. It's always this fluid experience of life. But as I started looking at how do I want to build my career and where do I want to spend my energy, what was really clear to me was this was very important. I wanted to create a world where people like my brother, my mother, my father had the space to be seen, to be valued and to really shine in life. And so my entire career was built around social justice issues. I was first looking at gender equality and international development. I transitioned to diversity, equity and inclusion in corporate Canada. And then I moved on to ESG and sustainability. And beyond that, at the highest level, the work we do around social purpose for companies. And so there's been many transitions in my career with a golden thread. And the thread has always been, how do I make the world a better place for all of us? And how do I do it at scale? And so inside of that work, I was 
going to many different organizations, traveling around the world, working on projects in Colombia and Thailand and East Africa and everywhere. And I started to see patterns. And I love this concept of theory of knowledge, which I learned when I was doing international baccalaureate. And the theory of knowledge was a program that we studied, but basically it asked the question, what is truth? Because so many of us are seeking some version of the truth. And in the work around social justice, many of us come to a particular issue like George Floyd's murder with our own version as if it was the final truth. You know, he deserved it, he didn't deserve it, this is happening to all of us, whatever it was. But what I loved when I learned that concept of theory of knowledge was the idea that truth is actually more like a prism that has many dimensions to it and that your version or interpretation of what's happening has some truth in it just as mine does and somebody else's does. And so when I created Conscious Equality, which was my reflections on, you know, here's the thing. I noticed that everybody was taking somebody else's framework, somebody else's narrative, somebody else's perspective and calling it the truth. But I wanted to say, how do I move beyond that? How do I add value to the body of knowledge around social justice, creating systemic change, helping organizations create real impact, whether it's on diversity or gender equality, what is missing in that discussion and those insights that we're seeing and hearing. And that's where conscious equality came from. It was honoring the idea that truth is more complex, that there are shades of gray in this work, and that we have many ways of approaching it, not just one. And that if we're truly seeking to create systemic change and bring people along, including the guys and the white people and the able-bodied people, you know, we need a fresh approach to it. And so that's where conscious equality came from. That's very interesting. And as you're talking about that, I'm thinking to when I first started in the industry and the term, you know, DE and I never heard of it. No one talked about it. Hmm. So all of a sudden in Canada, and especially the last couple of years, it's become very important. The chief people officers that I'm talking about and the CEOs that I'm talking with, this has become a very important topic. But when did this all change and what caused the change? Because again, when I first came into the industry, that wasn't even a term that I'd ever heard before. And now, fast forward the last couple of years, it's a very important conversation. But when did that shift happen? I think the most recent acceleration and I think attention to this work because it comes in waves. So the most recent was George Floyd's murder. And it was partly because it was, you know, so visible to all of us who are sitting at home during COVID. But also we were hearing how different groups of people are differentially impacted by major issues like COVID. So the number of black people who would die, the number of black people who could get access to health care, they had huge health issues, underlying health issues. They had no access to capital or savings, and they were really stuck in terms of trying to get access to the better hospitals and doctors, they had a disproportionate impact as a result of COVID. So we were hearing about what was happening out in the world. It was documented in a way that none of us could deny. And there was a huge outcry saying enough is enough. We need the world to start paying attention and doing something about it. Now, the interesting thing about corporations, because you asked the question around corporations, is many organizations took on this work as a way to avoid risk which means that they were very performative. They didn't want anyone calling out their company saying, this is happening in the world and you're doing nothing about it. And so where I come into the conversation is I say, those moments are important moments when social consciousness is demanding that organizations take on some of this work, but it's really important that organizations do it meaningfully and carefully. 
And I find that those who didn't were called out for using it as an opportunity to not be ridiculed in media or not be called out. Because this is an opportunity to make real change. And so if an organization is going to do it, why not do it well? So Karen, your passion is obvious. It comes through. You've created this conscious equality framework. It's obvious that, you know, this is your why, this is your mission. Can you talk a little bit though about drill down when you're working with someone, you're working with a corporation, like the boots are on the ground, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How do you approach this challenge and make change within, again, a company, a corporation, whoever you happen to be working with? That's a great question. So I've worked in two capacities. I've worked as a consultant where I go in for a specific piece of work. It might be creating a new initiative, setting it up, uh, strategy, training, coaching leaders one-on-one around certain issues because there are leaders who need that extra hand. (laughs) So, So I work in many different capacities as a consultant, but I've also led internally as the head of anti-racism DE&I or, you know, the VP of sustainability, I've led this work internally for a number of different organizations. And so if I bring it back to the conscious equality approach, regardless of what I'm doing, this framework is the framework that is my roadmap, even when I don't present it as the way forward. And what's really critical about it is that it has four quadrants that answer the question, why haven't we made more progress over time? And so if I can just take a few minutes to kind of unpack that framework, I think it would be really helpful for your listeners because if they're in this work, they will mentally know we're doing a lot of quadrant A, we're not doing enough of quadrant B. And my thesis is that to be sustainable and to do this work meaningfully, we need to do all four quadrants of work. And so quadrant one is looking at parity. So when we ask organizations, what are you doing around DEI? A lot of organizations are looking for those little things that they can measure that don't take too much change. And it might be, okay, we're going to start posting our jobs in LGBTQI network, and we're going to try and attract more diverse clients. That's great. But if your organization is anti-LGBTQI, you're not going to get very far with those interviews, right? Or people will join and they will leave. So Parity in particular talks about 50-50. So in Canada, we have a call to action to have at least 50% of senior leaders being women. And we haven't hit that yet, but it is a call to action with 30% being diverse from different groups. And so there is a mandate. The government is asking corporations to lean into this and do this work. But my thesis is that it's not enough to address representation. We need to create meaningful pathways for leadership so that those people end up at positions and tables of power and their experiences and perspectives can actually shift the way business is done fundamentally. So that's quadrant one. And then quadrant two is what I call the equity type of work. Equity work is really about understanding different needs of different groups of people. So we're not all the same. Yes, we all come to the same organization and we work at the same organization, but I'm a mother of three. Maybe you're taking care of your elderly parents. Maybe somebody else is dealing with a suicidal spouse. Like we have different realities and we require different types of support from the organization, both culturally and institutionally. And so the idea behind Quadrant 2 is let's create a systematic approach to understanding who are we working with, those different groups, and what do they need to thrive at work? And there's two levels to it. There's needs and barriers. So the example that I like to give is imagine that you're a company that wants to bring in more LGBTQI staff and you say, okay, what do we need to do to make that happen? Let's create gender inclusive washrooms. 
pretty straightforward. So you create gender inclusive washrooms and you say, okay, we have this group of people joining us as staff and we've met their needs for a separate washroom. Now, that's all fine and good, but what if in the first month or two that I'm working at the company, I constantly hear homophobic jokes in the coffee room, or I, you know, I haven't come out, they don't know my orientation, but I hear that my leader is really against my lifestyle and my values and beliefs. So the washroom is not solving the problem. I have another barrier in the way that requires more work. And so that's why I separate unique needs and barriers and both types of work must be done. And then the third piece is social transformation and allyship. So whether it's in a sector, like I just did a session yesterday with broadcasting and a session the day before with the industry on pharmaceuticals, there are certain values within the culture of certain sectors that are dominant towards men or dominant towards white people or dominant towards able-bodied. Like there are values that are built into certain cultures within sectors. And so in order to create inclusive workplaces and to create real meaningful opportunities, we need to do the work around re-education. We need to do the work around dialogue. We need to help people understand what it means to be an ally so that you can be part of the conversation and you know what it means to not be a bystander as these things are happening around you. So that's all social transformation. And then, and here's the part that nobody ever talks about that has come from my international work. So you can do all three things. You can have lots of diverse people and meet parity. You can meet their unique needs for washrooms or, you know, gender transitioning policies or whatever it is you're doing, maternity policies. You can do the education, the diversity, equity and inclusion training, the mentoring and coaching for staff. You can do all of that. You will still not have a net forward momentum until you do the last thing. And the last thing is what I call doing no harm. So identifying risk and managing unintended outcomes. So I always say good intentions are not enough. And this work is so filled with people who have good intentions that don't quite understand that anytime we're creating a change for this group or in this way, it comes with a ripple effect on everybody else. Those in power, those who are threatened, those who you know, feel like they're getting unfair a disadvantage because of your new policies. And so we're dealing with human beings and human beings all respond differently to the same initiative. And so it's really important that we manage those risks and we identify them and that we are open about where we made mistakes and how we learn from them. And a great example that I give around this was an organization that I worked for that wanted to be inclusive of LGBTQI. So they said, okay, we are going to institute a new policy that says that we all need pronouns on our email signatures, everybody. It was going to be a no exception, CEO and everybody else put your pronouns on your email signature. But I asked us to slow down and ask the question, if we introduce this policy with the intention of being inclusive, what do we need to know? What are we not aware of? What do we not know we don't know that's going to be part of this that we need to factor in? And people were saying, this is a great initiative. We support it. It's so amazing. It's about time. And then there was one comment in there that said, I am transitioning. I am not ready to come out. If you make this a policy, you're going to hurt me in one of two ways. You're going to force me to use a pronoun that doesn't fit me because I'm not ready to come out, or you're going to force me to come out and have conversations I'm not willing to have at work or in my personal life. So you see, receiving that feedback meant that we could put the pause on the policy and say, so how do we create an inclusive policy or practice while honoring the fact that not everybody is going to be ready for this. And we ended up not making it a forced policy. We ended up making it a best practice that's encouraged for those who are ready. And so 
I can give you a million examples where we have tried to do the right thing or do something well, and because we didn't take the time to look at those prisms of truth around the thing we're trying to do, we hurt people in the process. So that's my approach. I don't always, you know, put up the framework and say, here's what we're doing, but there are four sets of questions. There are four points of view. And I'm looking at every dimension of the work that we're doing and I'm capturing, what are we doing here? Are we doing enough of that? Have we thought about this? Did we ask those questions? And this is where I've seen organizations really rise to the occasion and do meaningful work in the process. You've made some great points. You've talked about some great things. My mind is, my, the little gears are turning. But I have to ask you a question, and I'm just going to go out on a limb. I'm going to bet that there's been a number of times when you've met with some resistance around some of your ideas and some of your concepts and some of the things that you, you know, show people and on ways to move forward. How do you deal with that? Well, the first of all, what is your relationship with resistance? Because my relationship with resistance is you're interested in a conversation. You have a point of view that I need to understand to get underneath what is the actual concern you have. So if somebody tells me they disagree with me or they don't support me, I want to know more. And I mean genuinely, I want to understand what is in the way of us being on the same page or seeing things from the same point of view. I don't always need us to agree. So a great example of this is an organization that I worked for where the CEO was very passionate and wanted to do the right thing. And they were white and male. And, you know, they made sweeping statements. You're either on board for DEI or you're out of here. We don't want people in this organization that don't want to do this work. And I had people come to me and say, I came to this organization to sell something that I believe in that had nothing to do with doing good in the world. And so they would say, this is really disturbing for me because I feel like I have no voice. I can't disagree. I can't say I have a different point of view. And it feels very exclusionary. And so I said, you're absolutely right. What you're experiencing is not the spirit of this work. What you're experiencing is what a lot of other people feel when they're talking about race or age or other things. But you're right that you should be able to have a different point of view and you should be able to disagree and still come to work and do meaningful work alongside me and everybody else. And so the conversation I had with the CEO was, what you just did is not supporting the cause. What you did is actually against what we're trying to promote, which is that we can meet a group of people and do some really good work and that this is ongoing and we don't all have to be you know, full on activists as we're moving in the right direction together. So I think resistance is amazing. I teach about resistance. There's like 17 different strategies that you can use to deal with it. But for me, it comes down to where is that point at which I fully hear your concern and I fully understand what's in the way for you. And then how can I address that in a genuine way so that we can still move forward together? And sometimes the answer is we disagree and that's okay too. It's fine. The first thing I heard there was, you know, you're genuinely curious and you try and dig a little deeper and find out a little bit more and try and understand their point of view. And I think that's, that's a good lesson at any time that we're not just necessarily talking about this topic, but any time that you have some disagreement, I think most people kind of tend to do this and butt heads and not really try and understand the other point of view. So I think that's valuable just in itself. I think that's a great approach to life in general, like outside of business, right? The people with very different perspectives Exactly what you said, Al. Instead of butting heads, well, that person's a dummy. Let's be curious and figure out, okay, why do they have that perspective? Is there something that I've missed? Let's have a conversation and figure out why that person thinks that way. So I think that's a great approach. Karen, you obviously work with a lot of organizations, as do we. Can you maybe talk to 
organizations that you go into, they've hired you for the first time. Where do you find that they're struggling when it comes to this? And maybe there's some insights that you can provide, you know, little tidbits or clues, as it were, about where they can even start with something like this. Yes. I mean, it's so specific to the organization, but I would generally say that by the time somebody's come to me, because I'm very clear, I don't do window dressing work. I don't do check the box work. If you're working with me, you genuinely want to do meaningful work. So some of the places where we have challenges is they want to do good work, but they don't want to put resources to make it happen. So they want it to be on the side of somebody's desk as a quarter part of their job. And it's really hard to do meaningful work that way. So structurally, I think we have to have conversations about if your commitment is X, then you need to match it with Y resources. And if you aren't able to match it with Y resources, then how do we create more of a balance between the two? So that's one. I think the other thing is many organizations will hire somebody internally, which is great. I love that they want to support and promote people internally. But for example, in one organization, they picked someone within the executive team who happened to be a woman of color. And they're like, you be the head of DEI while you're doing your full-time job because you're the most executive person of color here. And I wouldn't say take the role away from them, but I would say set them up for success and give them the support and training they need to understand what this work is about. And that's why I created my six month mentorship program, which is on the job, where I literally go through not only the concepts and tools, but here's where you start. Here's what you do. Okay, you hit this challenge this week. Let's talk about how we would handle it together. So they get actual coaching from an experienced DEI leader, because often you're reporting to HR, you're reporting to the CEO, and you don't have somebody who has that experience to help guide you as you're doing the work. And you've just been picked because you have lived experience. Lived experience isn't enough. You have to have both lived experience and the actual technical skill to do the work and the strategies that make it come to life. So I would say those are two big ones. Another thing, you know, I wanted to ask you because in my conversations and in print media and things, I see the term equality and then equity, mm -hmm. you know, battered around. Those are the two words. Same thing or are they different things when you're doing your work? <laughs> yes. So if you don't take anything else from this program other than I'm nice as a Karen, this is the second thing. It would be that equity and equality are actually very distinct so equality is the outcome at the end of the work that we do, what we are achieving and trying to achieve, and we get there through equity. So that's really important that they're not the same. Equity is the way we get to equality. But it's so complex because there's equality of outcome, there's equality of opportunity, there's you know all these different equality of access to resources. The Canadian government actually breaks down equality into these three buckets, right? And so understanding really understanding what we mean and how we go about achieving equality is important. And one of the things that I will say, which is, I think part of what makes my work so different from others is I don't paint everybody with the same brush. So yes, we want pay equity. So you and I are doing the same work. We want to get paid the same. We want to close the gender gap and the race gap around income. But equality of outcome can take different faces and forms depending on what we're talking about. So Let's say there's two women working in your company. One woman has three children and for her, she wants to be able to do her job and also make sure that she's home early enough to make dinner for the kids. Whereas another woman might have an elderly parent and needs to be able to take time off to take them to appointments, right? Both those women want to succeed at work. They want the same outcome, but what they need in terms of flexibility and institutional support and cultural support is different. 
And so when we're looking at equal outcomes, that's where the equity piece comes in, where we say, okay, well, what you need is different from what you need. And some people will say, well, that's ridiculous. It's so inefficient. How are we going to deliver this for 3,000 people who all want different things? But what you'll notice is that if you ask the right questions, you'll find patterns and you'll be able to prioritize what is the thing that most people value most. It's a matter of level of thinking, right? Where is there a common denominator? Is it flexibility? Okay, how do we build practices and policies around flexibility so you can prioritize your needs? The simple answer is we want to get to equality, but what equality looks like for you and me is very different. And we need to have an understanding of that. And we need some flexibility around that as well if we want to have meaningful impact. You know, when we named the podcast, the idea was to tease out these clues through conversations for our audience so that Mm -hmm. they would benefit from these clues. What I've found that's happened, and that's happened, so that's great, and I'm very happy (laughs) with that. But what was really a surprise was Al and I are getting these lessons at the same time. And I'm getting those clues as we're having this conversation today because genuinely, Mm -hmm. equality, equity, I thought it was the same thing. So I'm so glad we had this conversation because I'm learning a thing or two here. That's great. If people are listening to this and the podcast is not over because we have Al's signature question, which I'm really curious about (laughs) how you're going to answer. But before we get to that, what are the ways if people want to work with you? Because I know know for a fact I'm going to get DMs and saying... Oh my gosh, that was amazing. How do we get in touch with Karen? And we'll, we'll give you your, you know, your credentials at the end about how they can get in touch with you. But what are the, some of the ways that people can work with you if this conversation has really stirred up something with them and they say, yes, mm. this is what we want to do? Yeah, that's great. So you can reach out on LinkedIn. I'm very responsive. You can text me. You'll find my phone number anywhere on the internet. It's easy to find. You can send me an email. I have a website as well. And what I'm doing right now, which I love doing, is being a guest speaker for corporate events. So it could be International Women's Day. It could be diversity and inclusion. It could be truth and reconciliation. September is a very important month for truth and reconciliation. And I think organizations really need to do their work around the calls to action. Really important that we get clear on how we can deliver on those. So at minimum, you could have me for an hour and we can have some really genuine conversations with your staff around this work and answer some questions they might have. And there's lots of other ways to work with me, but that's the first way I would say. If I saw you speaking in an event, if I get a little ad, I would definitely make my way down to that event. So most (laughs) definitely. Okay, that's great. Well, it's time. We've arrived at that time in the podcast for Al's signature question. Hold on. Al wants to go somewhere else. I want to dig. I want to dig a little bit deeper. Dig away, Al. Dig away. And I don't want this to sound like a corporate commercial or anything, but if a company approached you Mm -hmm. and, hey, I think we need some help, you know, I loved what you said, but our resources are limited. Like, what do you think you could say that you could provide the most impact for a company that, again, maybe they're just starting down this road. Maybe they want to explore this. This is something that's new to them. Like, where do you think you could deliver impact? Okay, so a company that says, we don't have a lot of resources to hire you for something big, but we want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Yeah. I would say create a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee and bring me in to do one or two sessions with them where we truly create a roadmap that they can own and move forward with. Okay. Because here's the thing. It is so important to have this anchored in your organization. I would say more than just one person's responsibility. The DEI committees are great because they have multiple perspectives, both in terms of functions within the organization, but also priorities and experiences. 
And DEI committees can do so much to drive this work forward meaningfully and in a way that respects what the organization is able to do or not able to do. So I love working with them. And I think what's missing for a lot of them is they're not practitioners, they don't have certifications, they don't know where to start and what to do. But if you can sit with them and give them a bit of a roadmap and say, you know, one, two, three, let's do this, this and this. And if you have questions along the way, just ping me and I'll guide you. We're on the path to making things happen. Perfect. I appreciate that. And you really basically said, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So a lot of those companies that are basically at square one, they probably just don't even know where to start. Yes, I've heard that often. We don't know where to start. We don't have a budget. We don't have a DEI person. What do we do? And here's the thing I want to say to anyone who's listening to this. There's always something you can do. One of my sayings is it's not just what you do. It's who you're being every day at work. So how can you as an individual, if DEI is not on your title, how can you show up to be more caring, more curious, more authentic, to step outside your comfort zone, to be able to connect with people who are different from you? That is something that I think anyone who listens to this podcast can take as an action out of this. And I gave the example when I was in university and we had a visiting professor who was blind. He'd been blind his whole life. He was doing his PhD and had come to Canada and was spending the summer in our residence. People would tiptoe around him hoping that he didn't know they were there. And you can imagine that he had heightened hearing. And so he knew exactly what people were doing. And I remember being as uncomfortable as everybody else because I don't know how you approach someone in that situation. I was young. I was uncomfortable. But I knew the right thing to do was not to ignore him. And so I took the moment to say the right thing to do is to acknowledge this human being and we'll figure it out together. And I just said, hi, I'm Karen. It's great to meet you. Are you here for the summer? And we started a conversation. And because I did that, other people did that too. So before we get to strategies and training and budget, let's start with ourselves. And that's one of the four principles of conscious equality is figure out who you're being every day, every moment, and how you can be even better because then you're living this work. Well, that was a great answer and a great story. And I'm glad I asked the question. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And now it's time. Yes. Now it's time for Al's signature question. Wonderful. Well, here it goes then. So the question is this. A society grows great when old persons plant trees in whose shade they will never sit. So can you talk about any of those proverbial trees that you might be planting? Yeah, I love that image even of sitting under trees that we plant and don't get to experience. So for me, every client that I work with, every organization that I walk into, every person that goes through my training programs, all of those are seeds that I've planted. Because in one way or another, they will have evolved to their next level of being as a result of the conversations we've had. And I've never met a person who hasn't had something new revealed to them through our experience together. And very often I'm learning in the process as well. But what I love about teaching and training in particular and being a guest speaker in particular is I can reach so many other people and I can give them one action, one tool, one thing to think about, one question to ask, and they go and do something amazing with it that I wouldn't have been able to do myself. And that's why being somebody who shares this work and the lessons I've learned and like I am so generous when it comes to sharing. I just want people to have this information so they can focus on doing something with it. So I would say my whole career has been about planting seeds and I have no idea how they will fruit, but I do hear from time to time from my students, from my clients, from people who said, you met me, you know, 10 years ago and here's what I'm doing because of the session I did with you. 
and it just lights me up. That's what we should all be doing. Well, that was great. And as the title of the podcast, Success Leaves Clues, you left clues all along the way throughout <laughs> this podcast. So really appreciate that. You definitely did. And you used the word there, which is exactly how I would describe you. And that's generous. Just sharing, openly sharing. And that happened from our first conversation. That's the feeling we got from you and definitely why we wanted to talk some more. So thank you so much for joining us. We really, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope everyone else listening enjoyed it as well. If they do want to reach out to you, you said LinkedIn, your website, that's the best way? Yeah, totally. Yep. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for listening. And remember, as we saw here today, success leaves clues, my friends. We'll see you next time. Thank you.